The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. to welcome Dave Finnegan. Dave Finnegan is an actor, singer and musician who has appeared as Mika Wallace in the film The Commitments as well as other movies and documentaries. He is also the lead singer of Dave Finnegan's Commitments. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you very much, Simon. Finally got here. Yeah, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, you know, fit and healthy through this lockdown. You're in Glasgow. How is the lockdown there? It's uh, been strictish. Um, you know, they, I think it's five or something. It's... It's just dead, really, you know, but I'm also a care worker now because of the music's dead, so I've been working with them um, in care homes for the last year. So it is, the virus is there, you know, it's, it's uh, and if it's there, you get rid of it, simple as that, you know. In Scotland, like, are the numbers high compared to the rest of Britain, or what's it like? Uh, well, you, people forget, you know, like Ireland, four million, Scotland, I think there's about that, it's maybe five million, and then you got England, which is... <laughs> probably has the majority of 40 million or something so um i think yeah there's a death rate but you know like i, I don't know which way to put it it'd be about i'm not sure what the death rate is but it, it's uh it's here like everywhere else it's just a smaller country how long are you in glasgow how many years have you been there now, been there now? uh four years living um and i lived in england for about since 98 so yeah, it's um, about 20, what, 23 years, something like that, you know. How long ago was the last time you were gigging? Um, oh, I think not last year, November, the year before. Wow. Yeah, so we, obviously we, we, are, we were booked out last year, but everything's being put back, so. And it keeps on getting put back again. We had dates. I was meant to go to France in March. But that's been put back to December now, you know. I think a lot of people, you know, bands, musicians and everything there, you know, they thought maybe they'd be back um, playing in March or April. But now I see, I saw yesterday a lot of bands there are putting it forward to December of 2021. So it's a long way away still, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I said I was talking to my management um, just for him that I was going to talk to you today. And um he rang me to take the French gig and we got other stuff coming in. Look, it would have been a busy year, but they tapped the deal through politicians and everything. And he's looking at June. Wow. The way things are going, it'll be June before um, anything gets going. It depends on the vaccines and the rollouts. And uh, that's really, I think that's what it is. It's the vaccine thing. And once they get that done, they can go. But then they keep coming up with another variant or something like that, you know. So it's it. I don't. I'm not into politics, and I don't watch journalism a lot. Not against you, but <laughs> it's um it's because because things have been changed so many times, you know. And yeah. my, my my aspect on the whole thing is that because I've I've worked care work that it is there, but it's just when they know we're having the lockdown. Yet we're having the lockdown. No, we're not having the lockdown. It's lockdown three. You can wear one boot, but lockdown four, you can only wear one sock with two boots. The rules are all over the place. I've got that from a friend of mine. He plays in a band in Dublin, and he was bored, and 
he's talking about the Irish lockdown and he was like, I don't get a phase five, you can wear one shoelace with no... <laughs> I just broke my heart laughing at him, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because, you know, they've everything closed down. It's the same in Spain here. You know, there's lots of things closed down, but here, the bars and restaurants are open, so it's mad. You go and it's like a typical Friday or Saturday when you go to the bars. There's no clubs open, but... It's mad because there's so many other things closed too. Yeah, seemingly Spain had that hard last year or something. Yeah, yeah, it was very hard. It's, I don't know. I, I, I just don't get it at the times. So, you know, I know the way um, the media works and anyway, been through it. So. So let's go back a, a little bit um, to your early life. So where where were you born in Dublin? You're a, a Dublin... I, I, I don't want to call you a Jackie and you could call me a Kulshi, but you're a Dublin man, so... Uh, Whereabouts were you born in Dublin? I'm Irish. I'm Irish. <laughs> I'm Irish. Um, I was raised basically in Crumlin, but I think I, I was born out in the Coombe, up there in Cork Street. And we um, brought up, we moved around a little bit, I think Liberties and all that, so inner city. And I know from my grandmother and grandfather that lived in Crumlin, they were all inner city people that came from the country. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd basically say Crumlin's my, mm. my home of all. And you know, what's your kind of memories of growing up in Crumlin? Was was it? Did you find that it was a great place to grow up, or did you find that you know, obviously there was troubles there for you as well and people around you? Or how, how did you? How do you perceive it now when you look back? You know, it was just typical. I went to a Christian brother school in Crumlin. It was two doors away from me. It was always late. <laughs> and growing up in the Christian Brothers School, you know, it's it was all right, you know, like they can be a bit strict. We've heard all the stories and them, um, but um, there were good times. There was lots of sport, um, you know. They that I had the talent for music or something. There, the teachers did actually, and um, yeah, we lots of good times hanging around with your mates and still mates today. You know, they, before mobile phones, we just used to go on these mad walks and end up in the mountains, get lost for three days, your mother looking for you, clip of the ear, you're grounded. And, uh, you know, I was I was very... Um, so we lived with my grandmother and grandfather, which the house now my mum and dad have now, but I grew up in that, and I'm now the oldest of seven. But there was three of us. It's a big family, but the big gaps in between, you know. Um, as I said to my mum and dad, at least she's had a good rest between them. <laughs> Um, I still, you know, this since the commitments, they still support me today. You know, like had Phil in it live around the corner from me. I lived on Captain's Road. He's Leglin, you know. So there was a lot of um, people from Conor McGregor, I suppose. You know, but the Crumlin people, they they have a bit of history. You know, were your parents from that area? You said they were from the country, no? Originally, that's what you said. No, my grandparents were. Your grandparents? Yeah, yeah. Dad, I think my dad was uh, Liberties and all that. You know. But my mum and dad are both from Crumlin and anyway, you know, that's where they met and they, she lived at one end of Crumlin and my dad lived the other end and they, they met and got married and lived in Ballymun for a while when I was a kid and then moved in. It's just when the times were hard and then there's, you know, and I grew up in the 67 I was born. So, you know, my grandfather was horse and cart man, you know, my dad did a call um, on the back with the horse and carts and you know, all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was um, just normal grown-up family and uh, 
that liked a few points, sing song sessions at the end of the weekend. That's no one was musical in the house. It, it, it played in bands, but that's really where I started getting it from. You know, it's funny when you when you look back at old Ireland like that because you know there was a lot of people would sing around the fire and sing around the table. You know, with the glass of whiskey and the can of Guinness or whatever the bottle of Guinness. And it's only kind of in later years, in the seventies and eighties. There was more people picking up guitars and stuff, I suppose. And you, you, I remember one father saying to me, oh, he said, I, I've always been a great singer, but I never could play anything. But So it's great to see my young lad playing a guitar now or something, you know. Well, man, after the Commitments movie, we were doing interviews left, right and centre all over the globe. And, you know, a lot of them had backgrounds in music. Andrew with Rob Strong, Andrew from, you know, like some of them went to theatre schools and, I'm a busker. I used to see Glenn Hansen busk across the street from me. And they were saying, um, so Dave, did your family play music? And I went, well, my dad sang. And um, oh, did he? Is that way? Yeah, but he sang. I said, where did he sang? At home and in the pubs. And, um, but they used to get thrown out a lot. And he said, why was the band no good? I said, he wasn't in the band. So he just used to get drunk and sing. But in them days, it had no singing allowed. So they'd be all thrown out. So that's where and he'd come home and sing with the rest of them, you know. So he wasn't yeah. in a band, he just sang in the pub, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but that, uh, you know, you, you pick it up and, you know, my mum and dad obviously growing up in the 50s and 60s were mods and teddy boys and records were there. So that was my first thing, you know. Yeah. Just a question there, because you said your grandparents were from the country. Do you ever remember, did you ever like go on tours or summer holidays down the country? No, no, not at all, you know, like as I said, my very traditional Irish, they they just walked in Dublin, you know, we went on trips with my family, you know, but um, no, I didn't really start travelling until I played in bands, but you know, yeah. I didn't have, a, I had a great childhood, you know, it, it was always something to do. Now you look at mobiles and technology now, and people say, oh, I used to, when I was younger, oh, you, I wonder what they'd done in the cowboy days or the medieval days, and they were bored, and you know, I look back and I go, wasn't really bored. We pl- I had a big hobby. I played Sabutio when we had big leagues. Table at Sabutio, yeah. Yeah, and we used to play leagues. I was actually um, nearly went in for the World Championships at that. Really? You know, that we used to have um, newspapers and make, you know, I'd be Liverpool manager and the other guy would be Tottenham Hotspur. We used to make little magazines. I was, I was brought, my, our main thing that kept us off the street, there was a youth club in Dublin called Brew Crumlin and Crumlin. And it was around by Father Allen, which he's on my Facebook, he's in his 80s now. And that was a club you go to, we'd have dances, music, um, football, boxing, everything. So we'd spent most of our time on football. So we spent, as I said, football, we spent most of our time there. So that kept us off the streets, although we still got into a little bit of trouble in them days. So we were busy. That's great, yeah, because, I mean, it's nice. I love hearing the old memories because, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm only, um, I'm 73. I was born in 73, so we're not a huge difference between us. But um, I love... I love hearing back to other people's childhoods because I remember my own and you remember, as you said, there was no phones and kicking the ball off the curb and running through the fields. And and like you said there, getting lost for hours or days and your parents saying, coming in at one in the morning, said, we couldn't we couldn't find the way home. <laughs> I want one, one thing I went to me and a friend, we just went on a, a walk somewhere one day. I'm from Crumlin because you could see the Hellfire Club and the Dublin Mountains from my house straight in front of you. And it looks like it takes five minutes, but three days. 
and we walked and we got lost uh, somewhere in the mountains and we're walking along it's getting evening and we were cutting through fields and next of all this guy came out and he says what are you up to boys and he said uh, we're lost we're trying to go home he said there's a big bull in that place you know and the fence was electric and he finally got us home he gave us a lift home you know so uh there's a clip in the air because we disappeared but things like that we used to and then there'd be gangs of us going on walks and you know cause a bit of mischief i suppose you know nothing yeah, you just brought back a, a big memory of mine there was and i actually was talking about this a few months ago but um i remember when there was a neighbor of mine his name is patrick Fahey, he used to be my neighbor and we'd go up the, the back field and there was this old like landlord's estate with big high walls and um it was called it, it, what was it called oh i can't remember the name of the place and um but we'd go up there and there was a, an orchard and you'd go in stealing the apples. But the, the farmer used to put the bull in there. And so we went in and we didn't couldn't see the bull. So we're taking the apples and we're on the way out. Next minute, the bull was standing near the door blocking our our exit. So, Jesus, we ran. And, of course, he ran after us. And it was big, hefty oak. And we scaled the wall as quick as you'd ever scale it, you know. And uh, we were up on the wall. We couldn't get down. And the bull snorting at us from below the wall. And I always think that kind of stuff doesn't happen nowadays. No, you know what? That, that's really that. That was another big hobby: orchard nicking. Apple. Yeah, you know, like yeah. that. Uh, the local priest had, or <laughs> whoever had them, they were getting done. And oh, I remember my grandmother and my mother. There was always apple tart at the weekend because you needed <laughs> cooking apples. You used cooking apples, which are sweeter. So that, yeah. I think we had bloody apple tart for ten years. With school, then, what were you like in school? Were you were you did you like it? Were you an academic or just a hellraiser? Uh, daydreamer. Daydreamer. Yeah, I think I when I was younger, I was <laughs> I wasn't a bully or that. Night. I was quite the opposite. I was small, skinny, and I didn't. Uh, my dad was a tough man, so. You know, I I am um, a lot of people from Crumlin from that lived around me. Obviously, Crumlin has a, another side to it. Um, so I just didn't like it, and I was very, you know, there was always the bully in school, and I sort of um, daydreamed and in football. I, I I'd be like if we were at maths class, I'd be daydreaming, making up these little football competitions, get a clip in the air, but nothing. Um, Mad until me later years of school before I left, I had an openness there putting a bit of um heaviness in me, you know. Yeah. So much you can take from bullying, you know. And I probably became a little bit of a bully at times and I didn't like it, you know. I had the soft heart so but I kept myself busy with as I said, music. I, I had a dream, always something in me uh, that I wanted to do was acting on music, something. Not for money, just it was always in me as a kid, so I became very hooked with Elvis when I was young and Bruce Lee, which are still two of my heroes. So I loved the martial arts. I had a friend, Paddy Stacy, and he lived around the corner, still a friend today. And he uh, was into the martial arts. We watched these Chinese things. We dressed in ninja suits and go training in the park at 12 o'clock at night, walking down the street. Wow. With the swords and everything. And yeah, so I was a big Bruce Lee for nothing. And Elvis was sort of. I seen him on TV. My mom's friend was in the house, and Elvis was doing Return to Sound of the Black Suit, and a guy just caught my eye. So these two guys caught my eye, which in right they were them um, icons, and that, and they caught my eye. So 
The martial arts all dreams to go to Hong Kong. I'm leaving tomorrow and going to Hong Kong. Yo, you're not. Yes, I am, man. No, yeah. I'd, I'd wear the, the Chinese traditional Kung Fu suit walking down the street. I didn't give a shit. <laughs> Were you studying Kung Fu just at home or did you go to a club or something? I'd done a bit. There was no really Kung Fu skills until karate skills, you know? Yeah. I know the difference between it now. I'd done a bit and then I'd get books and I'd stay in my, my room. My bedroom was my uh, world, my bubble. Yeah. Music and thing. I learned everything myself in there. Listened. I never went to le- uh, acting skills or music skills. Just working class family. Get the records and um, just spend the whole day in my room daydreaming. And then I got from Elvis into the 50s kind of thing. I think it was 11. Me hair went into a quiff and that, all that. So, you know, I just get slagged in school. All right, Elvis and all that thing. You know, the, the way it was. Yeah. But so yeah, that that was the the goal um, when I was young. So that that kept me busy. I had the youth club with Father Alan, which he's an inspiration because we'd have boxing, karate there, and everything, sport, running, and but music. And he he used to take us on day trips, or we'd go on holidays down to Limerick, and we'd have competitions. And he he'd always have these tapes in the care of what's coming out in the eighties, the jam. And everything, and he gave me this one. He put as a new band called the Stray Cats, which yes. is the new rockabilly, is a bit more punky. And I just went, wow, I'll have that. So the hair went higher. But before that, I was always I was a teddy boy, which was the only thing I didn't know what rockabilly was. And there was a teddy boy gang in Dublin, and I got to join them, and we'd um, have night pop high pop nights in uh, town. I think it was on Cable Street and had the hair and I had the, I think my suit was purple and my man said, you ain't wearing that down the street. I said, I am. I'd walk down the street and she'd go, oh Jesus, I'm going to hide. Don't let him come in here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the hair all greased. I was, I haven't got the, I haven't got the hair now. And so I got, that was the teddy boy in the rock and roll fifties from Elvis. That was uh, what got me into music really. That, I, I've always loved the dress sense of yeah. What was probably the early 80s, there was all, you know, sometimes you see bands now, they just, someone said they look like they've just come from work, you know, trousers and t-shirts. Yeah. There was a certain, you had new new romantics, they dressed that way. You had mods. You had the teddy boys and rockabillies. They had a, a sense of dress, the skinheads or punks. There was always, uh, or the guts, there was always that thing which we grew up with. I think what it was, I remember my brother was a mod and he used to have the Vespas and the Lambrettas and the Parkas and the room covered with the jam, the hood style council, everything, the blades, everything. So that was a great scene. And I think what it was, the great thing about that kind of thing was it took people out of the reality of their life, which could have been bad or good or whatever, but it was that daydreaming kind of scenario where people could dream of being something or being somebody else, no? Yep, yep. Uh, you know, like, I'd probably get to it later on, you know, like, the commitments like movie was made about recession, but I said to somebody, I didn't. we didn't know what, we probably wore in always in a recession in Dublin. That's why we done them things to get out of it. But we didn't know, I didn't know what recession meant till it came to really England and global things and, you know, money and all that. Um, we just weren't used to that. Money didn't really exist, you know. Uh, yeah, you get your food, Bob, to go on holiday, or Mark can I go to the bats for a swim, or mm. you know, switch. Yeah. But it, it wasn't that. The excitement thing was the dream world, yeah, for sure. You know, the escapism. 
you know? when you were young then obviously you were having that kind of dream world and your normal world did you have jobs then when you were young did you work with your father did you do jobs around the place I had to walk in the house. If my dad was doing walk in the house, he'd be in and out walk. He worked for Jacob's Biscuits. He worked for C&C, the, the lemonade factory. As I said, he was a coal man. So there was always different jobs. And my grandfather, obviously, the horse and cart. We had horses there in Crumlin, uh, down the old county road. Um, you know, the rag thing, the rag toy man, where you give your clothes and you get a bloody balloon or a, one of them things you blow and they go around them really Oh, things. yes. Compared to mobile phones, <laughs> so yeah, it was um, yeah. I didn't my 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 dad's side where we lived in the house. My grandparents, my granddad died when I was three or four, so I barely remember him down with just visions of it. This man they used to sing poor old Michael Finnegan and the horses. So I remember very vaguely, and my grandmother died in seventy seven. I was about ten or something. So. I remember her as well, big woman, and but my grandparents on my mother's side lived the other side of Crumlin, and I used to go down and stay with them a lot. I loved, just loved your grand. Every every kid loves their grandparents, you know. You know, so yeah. it, it was um, I had a great family. Yeah, really. Good you, family. you mentioned there, you know, uh, you, you used to be doing busking. Was that something like what? What age did you start playing? Uh, you were playing guitar, were you? Did you start playing guitar? Or singing? No, I, I or didn't singing. know how to play any. I didn't know how to play any instrument. So, the Stray Cats came out in 1980. I would have been 13, so I was still not able to go anywhere. But you know, we, we'd get out. You know, when walking town, and my mate and my brother were mods, and anyway, the skinheads and all the guys that grew up in Crumlin are still mods today. I scooter but yeah. I was the other. I was the only one that was the the rockabilly teddy boy, which we call it a basic mods and rockers. And um, I used to see the guys in town all dressed up and it looked cool to me and you go home and and eventually Paddy Stacey, as I said, the skinhead guy, he introduced me to a, he was walking in Quinsworth, the shopping centre, and he introduced me to a guy that was into the same music as me. Damon Free was his name, uh, rockabilly, and he could play a bit of guitar and then we met a Scottish guy that I met from Glasgow that lived in Dublin in the 80s, Chris. And I only met him last year after 25 years, which is weird. Wow. And he was a, a singer, guitarist, and we met another guy, Willow, that was a bass player. So I didn't have any instrument. So in Rockabilly, all you used was a snare drum, so I had to learn to play the drums. I wanted to be the singer, but got me in a band. And uh, I started off as a drummer, really. But um, we used to go, when we busking, I, I was learning the guitar as well. And we'd go busking Grafton Street in Dublin, Henry Street, Stevens Green, you name it. Where the police didn't move us on, you know, because they always got moved on. You know? I'm telling you boys now, if you don't move, you're going into the nick again. Yeah, I remember because I was a busker in Galway for a few years and I started out playing music. And yeah, I remember some nights with the law and you're kind of trying to be reasonable with them. And, but if you get a thick guard, you know, and uh, he, they'd be kicking the bag with the money on it and everything. And you'd be kind of saying, you can't do that. And he'd be like, I fucking do what I want. And, and you'd be like thinking, well, Jesus Christ, these lads. And, you know, the, the, the point is sometimes you'd see them acting inappropriately with other buskers or hitting them or moving them off the street. And he, there was a lot of thick guards, a lot of good guards out there, too, but a lot of thick ones. Yeah. Uh, nah, yeah, there was, you know, like, that was the job, you know, you're you busking Grafton Street. It wasn't actually the police that came. 
Uh, but we don't forget, you had four guys with quiffs, a big double bass, a snare drum, two acoustics, you know, wearing fifties clothes, doing fifties <laughs> songs, blue sweatshirts, and you're gonna get a big crowd. Yeah. You know, like Glenn Han said from the committee, he busked on his own, but we we busk in a band at the weekend, and um, so yeah, big crowds, and then outside Arnett's on Mary Street or Henry Street, and you know the. It'd be the management that'd be ringing the police because I was blocking customers. You know, it was upsetting. And I said, actually, I thought it was the opposite. I thought that'd be a great advertisement. It would be now. You know, yeah. go out there and buzz and we'll give you a tenner plus your yeah. money and get the people in and just say after your song, oh, Aaron, it's doing this. But then there's no, they'd moan and fucking please to be down and come on, lads, you have to move on. So we'd wait until the ghost started again. They came back, threatened the rest us. Then we just move up, even bust outside the GPO, and anywhere you could, you know. And you used to get people loving, and you get the odd ones. Oh, you're beggars, that's all you are. I don't think it was for the money, it was for um, just wanting to play and getting into the city centre like, so people could see you was because you had to go into the city centre to be sort of known anywhere, really. So busking was the first thing. Busking is a great thing because, you know, I've I've had a few guests on the show now who are former buskers as well. And I mean, it's great because you you just, you, you get into the grassroots of music and you make all your mistakes. And, you know, I, I always used to remember once I was busking on Shop Street in Galway and um, George Best came up walking with his beautiful wife, you know, and she taller than him. And he stuck a fiver in my strap and he said, good man, keep playing. And I was chuffed. I was like, Jesus Christ, it's Georgie Best. And that was a few years before he died. But he, he used to have some great memories of meeting people on the streets and some great faces and everything. Well, it got, that's how it got me into the gig scene. So, and you know what? Till this day, there's a lot of buskers in Glasgow City Centre, in Dublin. I, I still give them money, you know. Always do. It's just a habit. You know? Yeah. It's, um, or even homeless people. I just, oh, there you go. And someone said, why'd you do that all the time? I said, no one else does. Why not? Yeah, yeah, you have to give back a little. Um, so, so tell us then, with like obviously with the acting, did you fall into the acting? Like, is it something you were dreamed about, or you know, before you did the commitments, had you done any acting in school or in in, in theatre in town or anything? No, the only thing that we done in school was <clears throat> there'd be you know you had Christmas shows or something like that, but I never got involved. Then in we joined the, the uh, school choir. So, and, um, but as I said, I was talking about our local um, club in Crumlin, Brew Crumlin, father, and that's, you know, like, got me into music, really, and, because, um, he, like, he introduced me to all these, like, Bruce Lee and Elvis kind of things, and the records and everything, so that was the, uh, but what he'd done was every year when we were young, we'd go on two weeks to a place called, in Limerick, South Ireland, to a place between Clare and Limerick called Palace Genry. Because it was oh, run yes. by Don Bosco. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was run by Don Bosco, Salesian Priest, the club. And Father Alan was actually from Norwich, big Norwich fan. But he was the first Church of England to be ordained into Catholic, from Protestant to Catholic in Ireland. And he became a Catholic priest, and he's always been in Crumlin. So, yeah, he was great. But he was the one that, he was like a bit of an open priest. He wasn't by the rules. And, uh, you know, he had uh, everything, football and competition. So, yeah, it kept us busy. It was always something to look forward to. You go in the club tonight, what's on? You said karate, you know, like. 
So the music was the thing, listening to it. And don't forget, us kids in them days, we used to have posters on our wall. Now we have them on our phone. And, you know, you have a little tape recorder with your tapes. And, and I thought, yeah, so I just thought, I don't know how, I, I still don't even know, because some Alan Parker says, you're, you're actually natural, which I didn't understand what natural talent meant. It means like just, you had it, but you didn't yeah. know. So, so how did... How did the um, the commitments was ninety one? So wh- when did you? What year did you start filming it? Nineteen ninety. Uh, I think it was around September, October, nineteen ninety, and it came out a year later. And was it? You know, how, like for the for the casting and for auditions for all of that. Sorry, not my things. So was um was the casting for the film? Did, did they go around Crumlin or different parts of Dublin looking for people, or how did you hear about well, it? Well, just to go back, because at the house, like in the 80s, I, when I started playing in bands, I played in what you call rockabilly, psychabilly. Psychabilly was big in England and Europe. It was a sort of punk version of rockabilly. Everything was exaggerated. You didn't have to wear the teddy boy. So every bit of power, we had that band. My first band was the Bone Shakers. Played the underground in Dublin, which was where all the bands played, small little place. And then I had a band called Shark Bay, which I used to wear just a pair of boxer shorts and eat the microphone on stage. That was it with this big quiff and jump like a fucking nutcase. And all the bands used to see me busking and they, the big bands in Dublin, there was a Halloween thing in a pub called the Clarence. I think that's where the Champers are. So it's around the corner from Brussels, the pub in Dublin. And there's only a place and the bands were playing and the guy said, we're going to put a band around you, Dave. Psychabilly band. First gig ever, first live gig ever, and Jesus, that was a night. It's Halloween, dressed up, and psychobilly was sort of different. You could wear bleach jeans, or I, or I wore a skirt to this gig, and Doc Martens. I mean, Quit was as big as bloody, very big. And the first gig, we done a practice. These guys that I was playing with, two of them were from my hero Dublin band, which was those handsome devils, Sean Foy. They were the first Ireland real rock, not show band, rock and roll, rockabilly band. And they were pretty big at the time in Dublin. So they were the first band I ever seen live and, you know, followed them everywhere. And then I got into bands. That that was probably the inspiration to get me into bands. Because I just, as a kid, watching the band play and you love them, it's, 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 um, it's exciting. I want to do that, I want to do that. And um, so, yeah, I started getting the bands and Shark Bait I had, which done pretty well in that kind of scene. Rockabilly and Psychabilly has never been in the mainstream. It's always underground thing. And, you know, so we, we had Richie Taylor that from Rocky De Valera, the 70s band, Rocky De Valera, and he was also an Irish journalist. He passed away. Well, he was our first manager. He seen us busking on the streets, and I was ended up playing with the Pogues on festivals. We were traveling, and everywhere in Ireland, with the rockabilly band, you know, we probably, mm. every musician wanted to play with us. Even then, um, we done a, a country festival in Dunleary, we, and the guys from, oh, what's his name? Brian Ferry's band, what were they? Rock Music. Yeah, and Chris was a top Irish country singer. We supported them, and actually, they got us to go back on and finish the show after them, and they all jammed with us. That's how heck wild we were. We were known for me wildness on stage. And yeah, so we I went to England and we were playing gigs over there and the scene doing well and band broke up. So it went through a dark phase about 88. 
And then I got an offer to do an album on the Rockabilly label, so I, I put a band together. And up to 1990, just a few gigs, and I was thinking about packing it in. I even got a job at McDonald's to keep me going. And <laughs> got a job at McDonald's in Grattan Street in the city centre. And then when I finish work, I go out and fucking busk outside. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so, and anyway, this film was going on. I acting wasn't my thing. I suppose we all dream of being an actor or a musician. And for me, it was because I seen Elvis or Bruce Lee in films. So I wanted to be an action or a singer. But action was always the. But I'd not. I didn't know anything about this film. But as you said earlier on, when your question was, they they did casting for actors and and they had open auditions. But they had every pub and shop had a poster advertising for anybody you know and mm -hmm. i didn't even see them didn't know anything said so, yeah the acting world was different to me it was a it's a different world to music and um yeah so things weren't going great we, we were out busking across from mcdonald's and Grattan street summer 1990 beautiful day ireland world cup jackie charlton i always remember it and we finished busking and there was a bar called Judge Roy Beans, Tex-Mex bar. And they let us play there without any microphones for free beer. we just go set up in the corner, big double bass. There was all wood so you could hear the boom, boom. And we were doing that for a few weeks. And, you know, there's a lot of Americans used to come over to Ireland in the summer, yeah. ancestral things. And we were playing in there and... There's people with a camera. I just thought they were Americans taking pictures and we finished our set and they came over and talked and said, wonderful, Dave, because I'd, I'd done the splits on stage and everything. I'd done anything you could. I always trained and trained. So <laughs> so they asked me, they told me, oh, we're doing this film, lad. Do you want to come down to Hubbard Casting in Lansdowne Road? Would you like to come down? I said, no. And Tommy Manager, he said, you have to go down. This was Saturday, you have to go Monday. I said, for what? He said, the TV thing. But one guy told me it was a Bisto Graveyard. <laughs> Bisto Graveyard? A musician, man. You don't do bleeding graveyards. You know, that's it. So Monday came, and I had no phone. And my mother, they had to come and get me because uh, I didn't turn up. And they said, they want to see it. He said, it's a movie. I fucking went in to the Lansdowne offices, and I was talking to them like I'm talking to you. And I said, Fuck, I thought it was a bist, oh great, I don't know how to act. He said, but you're jumping around. I said, that's just acting the go on stage, you know. And uh, But he said, oh, we just want you to come in and read some lines. And you're going to come in with this guy, and a guy from Cork was there. I always remember he was a Cork guy for the art, and you had to sit beside him and read off the lines. And I had to, I said, how can you start? I can't understand the fucking word he's saying. <laughs> and your mum was so serious, he said, will you shut the fuck up, mate? Shut up! <laughs> so I nearly boxed him. And they started laughing. And um, I just took it to me stride, and they laughed. They said, all right, thank you very much. Stay again, blah, blah, blah. Didn't hear anything. Then I was invited. They had a massive band audition for all bands for two days down at the waterfront in Dublin. And by the docks, we were invited to do it. Um, I went up, I was doing my psycho rockabilly kind of stuff, and Alan Parker's there, <laughs> sitting watching all the bands, he didn't look very happy, and 
I just started shaking the legs, done the splits, played a very fast song, went 90 mile an hour, put the mic in my mouth, and he just stood up and put his hands in the air, and he went, and um, then I was told after that to go backstage and meet him. Uh, I was in the kitchen of the venue, and everyone was there, the casting directors and producers, and Alan Parker himself. And I obviously heard of Alan Parker from his Midnight Express and all that, so. And I was, it was the adrenaline, the sweat was just pumping. And he said, right, we're going to, I said, but that's Jimmy Rabbit. I thought you said I had to go for some crazy guy. She said, Jimmy, because I'd read the book by then. And um, she said, no, we just do them two lines and just, okay, I read the lines and that was it. Then they called me back in again. They said, right, Alan's going to come over to you and talk to you. And they said, you're going to sit with him and he's going to abuse you. I think this is on the making of the commitments. He's going to abuse you. Like what? And I went, all right, what do I do? He said, just be at your natural reaction. So I'm typical crumbling head, Renlin's <laughs> pumping, sitting there, skinny as that. And this Cockney man, English Cockney man, they go, oh, are you fucking. I said, what? I said, who are you talking to? Something like that. And he says, talking to you. I said, what's your fucking mouth? And then he said, you and your. Sh I was going to have to go bald, you and your Sinead O'Connor hairstyle. He said, you've been smart. He said, yeah, I am. I said, listen, fucking Englishman. I said, he said, what are you going to do? He said to me, what are you going to do, you and an army? I said, I am a fucking army. I said, see that wall behind you? It's white. It's going to be red with your brains. That's how I got the part. And he said, very good, very convincing. And I said, I was only joking. And they came out and he said, hold on, Dave, um, don't go anywhere over the next two months. But you still got to see other people. But it was a wink in the eye. So it kept me mouth shut. And I didn't hear from them. And then three months, I think everybody was cast and I still didn't hear, so I forgot about it. And as I said to you, I had no phones, but I had a manager at that time, Richie Smith. Actually, he directed the film called Jadaville. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he sent everybody looking for me and I was walking out in McDonald's and I was going to do a gig on Monday night, Rockabilly Club. And he just caught me and he says, uh, Dave, you got to ring Richie. And, you know, phone boxes. So the pub I went into was the goth pub. So, <laughs> that's the phone dark. And uh, rang Richie, said, ring Hubbard's casting now. I said, that they want to talk to you. And I said, yeah, probably. He said, just ring them. I'm not telling you anything, whether you got or not. And I rang them and I got through and said, how are you, Dave? And I said, all right, how are you? And he said, are you fine? I said, yeah, yeah. So, and he says, just hold on there for a sec, let me five minutes. So, I don't know how much it was for three minute call them days, but I couldn't afford a tenpence or something. Yeah. Do you remember that? You put the money down, you pressed. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. It eases. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, uh, they came back and he said, how are you? Well, I'm off to do a gig in Whelan's. And um, he said, are you around tomorrow? I said, yeah, what time? 10 o'clock to come down. I said, why? What, what is it? I said, you got the part. Voila. I got the part. Brilliant. Of Micah, don't fuck with me, Wallace. Don't fuck with me, Wallace, yeah. It was, I, I was in shock. I was 24 years of age. Um, you know, you, obviously, I knew that because Alan Parker was behind it, so I, I'd already looked him up. So this was big, 
and we went up to the gig and started to hit me and everybody congratulated me I told them and the Hubbards came to the gig that night and sort of sunk in and went in at 10 o'clock into the Hubbards kitchen in that officer's house and the rest of the cast were there none of us said nothing but later on that night we were all pissed so there you go none of us said nothing until Alan Parker came in and I didn't really know I knew Glenn because Bus but the other Maria Dial because she was in the hot house floors but the others were in just bands I never heard of. Oh yeah, Ken McCluskey played in the band called the Day Eleven Runners on the scene. So, you know, just knew them. But uh, you know, as I said, we'd all different kind of worlds. I was into my rock and roll world, and they had their style. So you'd never interact with them, you know. Maybe at um, charity gigs or something, I'd see them. So that's yeah. how it all happened. And I, I got on with Andrew Strong straight away, and yeah. I ended up beating him up in the film. Yeah, you know, because yeah, still, we're still friends today. You know? Yeah, because it's funny, isn't it? People could have the perception that you don't like each other even to this day because of how you are in the movie. So it's completely different, isn't it? Uh, I just I remember he brought us for a reading. We'd all it was like um, going to an AA meeting. You sit around the chairs, and Alan Parker's there, and you have the script, and you're just getting. But you know, I heard this director was a very hard director, so it's like going back to Christian Brother School. But Andrew started giggling beside me, and I started giggling, and I couldn't stop laughing. That's how I got on with him. He just couldn't stop laughing. Didn't know what the fucking do, you know. But um, it's great the way from that day Alan Parker got that film made. But well, unexperienced musicians, most I think ten of us were musicians and two were actors. Yeah, because I, I was going to say most of the cast would have been musicians, singers in in a band. And then, like, Colomini and stuff, it's a few actors. Yeah, and the main cast, Johnny Murphy, rest in peace, and Brona Gallagher, and she was from Derry. She didn't even understand the Dutch. I hadn't got her Dublin accent yet, so they were the ones that had acting experience. But, um, yeah, there was a lot of Dublin actors that were pissed off that musicians got it, you know? But mm. that's the way he done it, and that's the way it, it was. And, you know, so if you look at today, you know, celebrities from these bloody programs naked truth they win it and now they're singers and when the singing starts to become tv presenters and fucking everything you know yeah i think that was the magic of the commitments was you know they took a cast that were inexperienced and they was well besides the, the experienced actors and basically they said okay you're musicians this this movie is about a band so we want it to be very real yeah, but Alan Parker knew what characters he wanted. Don't forget, he went through lots and lots of people. So that's the genius of him. He knew. And when he says um, that everybody was near the character, he said one thing in an interview. I said to them all, everyone's near the character that I picked. And Dave went, I'm not fucking Mika <laughs> But Because I wanted to be in that. Going back to the Bruce Lee, I wanted to be in fight scenes and films. I wanted. I was never physically abusive. I was young and shy, but you have that inner thing that you see things. And I wanted the cowboy movies, the bar fights and all that. So that was sort of exciting. Although it put me as a musician, and the film never left me as a musician. It left me as a, an actor, a crazy drummer kind of guy, you know? Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't matter. That's life. You, you don't moan at things when I lived, when you get a Hollywood film, you know? No, of course. And how, how many months did you film over? How, how long was it? Was it over six months, a year, two years? Yeah, I think we done four months, or four weeks rehearsals. Um, 
and got to know everybody and the people from America and England, English producers. And we'd rehearse and we'd do some musical rehearsals as well and get to know each other and get into our characters. Because when you do film, obviously, there's a lot of pre-getting to know, sitting around the table. So you're ready, actually, when the camera Hmm. starts rolling so he, he made sure we were all that so that was four weeks and then filming took three months everything three months wow and, uh, fabulous time fabulous time yeah you can never forget that day never never ever forget it as i said ireland's first world cup jackie charlton uh, you know it was just dublin was buzzing ireland was buzzing you know yeah, yeah. And could, were you very shocked at the response to the movie? Or did you think, like, when you finished it, oh, this is just going to be another Irish movie? Or did you think it was going to do something? Well, there was always little, you know, after the film was made, it went quiet. And then for four or five months, and then obviously the press release thing, the pre press release started. And um, there's a bit of contact to do an interview here. And the film hadn't come out yet. And then it was shown in Hollywood to the press. With a, with a little booklet with all the words bollocks, what that means, all the, you know, the Dublin slang. Uh, bollocks means too <laughs> And um, so John Hughes was the mu- one of the musical coordinators. He ended up managing the chorus. The chorus, yeah. On the film. And he went out to see it. And when he came back, I asked him and he went, the film's great. He said, they, they, they've loved it. So that was, you know, a past. And um, from there, you could say, then the premieres and um, we went to Hollywood. Met Kevin Costner and all them. They were all at our premiere, you know. And wow. Fucking unbelievable, surreal. And then you come back to Dublin for the premiere and it just, yeah, it's always good when a film gets great reviews and people love it. And that's, your life changed after that day. Sorry to interrupt you. Tell us about Hollywood. When you went to Hollywood, the whole cast went or a few of you or what happened? Right. I was <laughs> One of my rockabilly mates and band was getting married. And I said, I had no phone. So I didn't hear anything. And I think it was the Friday. And John Hughes was dealing with everything, as I said, the chorus manager. And I was at the wedding, but I was dating um, the Hubbard Casting's daughter that time. So she was with me. So she rang, was ringing home. She, a message, telegram came to the wedding. Said, "Dave, you have to go home. You're going to Hollywood in the morning for the premiere." <laughs> so this is three o'clock in the morning. I'm pissed, and fuck, straight home. Got a suitcase. Fucking. I think it took. I said to someone, "I think it was that fast. It took me mother's knickers and everything with me. I don't know what it took, but out to the airport. The seven leg hanging out of the taxi, pissed, and everyone's half pissed there." And you're so young, your adrenaline, there's no such thing as hangovers in them days. No. On the plane, first class straight to America. I think it was Virgin Airlines. First class, me and Andrew acting to go. Um, drinking on the plane. But behaving, you know, behaving. You're, 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 everything's first class. You're giving, I've never had it. So, hmm. yeah, get to, I never, the only place I'd been ever to was, uh, England with the, my old band to do a gig. I'd never been. Actually, I did. When people, during the, the break, when the film ended, I had the money and I took my self and I fucked off to Hong Kong to see Bruce Lee's. That's the first time I ever what? went to Hong Kong. Really? Yeah, I was walking down Grafton Street, pissed at my mate, and I just went in and booked it and went. 
I said, I'm never going to see this place. And I stood for um, a week. But they had red, because it was British owned, you had red telephone boxes. <clears throat> I'm ringing me mum. Hey, where are you? She said, you have me in Hong Kong. She said, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I'm in Hong Kong. It's a bit different from being in the Dublin mountains. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to try and get into one of these studios. They didn't like foreigners going to studios because they're trying. But they let me in. I was, a bit of a, I was on my own and I just stood there and came back. And then the film came out. So that was my first time. So it's the first time I ever experienced that kind of heat. And that's all I remember getting off the plane in LA. The heat hit you. Limos to the top hotel on the sunset. I think it was the Sherman, something like that. On uh, sunset. And we stayed there for the week. And just let us hang out for a few days and partying, you know, like have your holiday. A few interviews in the morning, the afternoon. And I was sitting at the bar in the hotel. And there was this guy in the bar. This hotel was beautiful. And, and he kept swinging this big hammer every morning and winking at me. And I go, and I go, I know this guy. I said, I've fucking seen that guy somewhere before. So every morning he'd be out training with this. And he'd be at the bar at night and he says, uh, look forward to seeing you guys' movie tomorrow night. And I went, ah, oh, thank you very much. And, and I said, you're from Rocky, ain't you? You're his brother-in-law, Paulie. Oh, yeah. And I said, you're fucking Rocky, you know. And he said, I've seen you with the hammer. I thought you were going to hit me with it. And he said, <laughs> I said, trying to get fit for a new film. So that was the first actor I ever met, Hollywood actor, him in the hotel. Got drunk as usual. I said I didn't. I was only started. This when my drinking all started. But, um, you know, you why not? You know, you you've never been to these places. People like us are never dream of them kind of places. No. You know? So we went down, picked up in the limo, and Alan Parker said the funny when they arrived at the red carpet. Dave plays the guy, the skinhead in the film. He's the only one that wears a suit, and the rest are still in the normal clothes. <laughs> and we, we got out of the limo I think some of them got out of the roof of the limo didn't but they'd all fucking limo you know you got a bar in the back of the limo and we got out on the red carpet China China the big cinema place where they did all the premieres and Wilson Pickett came to play with us after the film the after party Kevin Coster we met everybody Matt Dillon um, Ethan Hawks Naomi Campbell, they, all these people coming up to you, and uh, but Alan Parker done one of his interviews. He said the one where Dave was standing with Dick Massey, the other drummer in the Commitments, and a guy was waving over at us, and I was fucking looking around. I went, "Don't wave back in case." And me, I said, "That's Kevin Costner." He said he's probably waving at somebody else, but he got through the crowd. And he's coming towards us and had the head down, and he stopped. Handsome looking, six foot man, and one of my favourite actors actually. And um, he said, movie was awesome. You guys were great. Movie was awesome. And uh, thank you very much. And went quiet. Didn't know what to say. And I just came out. And he says, um, how's that headbutt of yours? And I went, oh, shit. And I went, how's Maid Marion? Because he just done fucking Robin Hood. And I just went, how's Maid Marion? <laughs> that opened up the conversation. But, you know, they were all lovely people, and we'd done Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York in the space of three days. I went Wilson wow. Pickett playing 
you know. And you met everybody from Sylvester Stallone to... And you know, I forget about that. I only think about it when I'm talking to people like you. Like it's a memory in the back Do you of the think that's... Um... Like that tour led was was part of the success because it was a totally different type of film for Hollywood. But the fact you went over there and introduced it, and do you think that led to a lot of the success too? Besides it being a great movie, yeah, it went backwards, didn't it? You know, didn't do it in Dublin or England. They done it in America, and we went for it. Uh, you know, take your chances, heads or tails, you win, you lose. And one, I came back, it hit Britain. It was massive in Britain and Australia. It was massive all the world. And then we done the premiere in Dublin, which was hometown, which it's just uh, you know, that premiere in city centre where you used to go to the cinema. You go right into the cinema where you used to go and watch movies, and the yeah. carpet and and uh, interviewed, and it's just yeah, families are there, and you know, like Gabriel Bourne was there, Liam Neeson. We became friends with Gabriel Bourne and Liam Neeson. They were great, great support for us during that time. In America, Liam Neeson used to come down and visit us, you know. Yeah. And I'll tell you a story about Liam Neeson. After the premieres and all that, but we used to go over to America to promote the album, do other things, and for the year after that, they are still promoting it. And we were standing, we went to Alan Parker's house in the hills, Hollywood Hills, and because we're Irish, he had stacks of Heineken and Guinness, I mean, fucking up to the roof. And he had this, pool in the middle and everybody jumped into it this guy comes down the steps with a white shoe and a slim Neeson and the girls are flopping over him you know and Johnny Murphy knew Liam to play Joe the Lips because they, they walked in theatre through the mm. years when we were kids but he came down to see us and he said I can't stay long because <laughs> he was going with Barbara Streisand and it's like I have to go to Barbara's house she's got a new movie she wants me to watch that just uh, and then all right so he had the beers and he was there and handsome looking man tall man yeah and he's after a few beers he went oh fuck it he took his clothes and just jumped in the pool with everybody and the girls were he went back he he was meant to be at hours of four o'clock he didn't leave till nine that night barbara's driving a fucking diva bam bam you and anyway he went and walks all the same as walking up the steps and the suit the suit wasn't white anymore it was pretty but uh yeah, that was great. And after that, any time in America when he was around, he'd come and say hello to you, you know. Gabriel Bourne yeah, was nice. great because he's a crumbler man. He he was very, i done a, a little part in Into the West with him. And he insisted and he was always very um, good to me, you know. So, yeah, that, 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 that was crazy times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that was the great thing, you know, because Irish people always kind of stick together. It doesn't matter how big they become. And But there's one thing there that's always evident in Ireland, isn't it, that things seem to become bigger outside of Ireland before Irish people embrace them, like the Cranberries, U2, the Commitments. I know the cores kind of were pretty big, but there was kind of England more, I suppose, and, you know, America too. But... Um, I don't know what it is here. We kind of tend to go, oh, yeah, it's good. But then when it becomes successful outside the country, everyone loves it. Yeah. I, I, someone says in an interview to me, how do you rate the Irish music industry for um, making you what you are? And I said, they never did. Yeah, they didn't. You know, I, I'm not a manufactured guy or whatever it was, but maybe the type of music or... Um, like the commitments was, 
the only Irish thing about that was it was made by Roddy Doyle that wrote the book. Yeah. You yeah. Know, the, the, most, the producers were English in Hollywood. You know, most of the crew were English. There are a lot of Irish crew on it, you know. Of course, you have to use Irish crew. And I said, a wonderful time with all these people. But even in my music, even though I never played on the major chart things, I was always on the independent music. And um, that was England that done that pre-commitments, you know. I, I, all my rockabilly albums are done from England or Europe. You know? Yeah. I've never yeah. actually recorded in... Although I did do Nighthawks, because Shay Healy got me on Nighthawks. Oh, yes. Me and I, lo I, I love Shay, you know, and yeah. I ended up doing Nighthawks, the last series with Shay, and he was great to me, you know, just to keep me in the thing. So, yeah, so <clears throat> things like that. But as music goes, um, I never became a musician after the commitments, more of an actor, which, but before that, no, we, we, we'd have to go over to England. And then, you know, it was more when you come back. You know, yeah, they love you more, and you and you get your awards or whatever. <laughs> did did you wrong? I said no. It's true. You know, it's no one's ever signed me in Ireland. I said, you know, it's always after you've done the work. Were you there when the when the band played the Grammys? Yeah. Oh, you were. How was that? Because we had the drummer. Someone put that up on um, Facebook a few weeks ago. It was never. It's on YouTube. Someone put it up to me a few weeks ago, and I went, oh, my God, remember that? <laughs> this is typical Irish. We to do Mustang Sally, so the band mimed. And I, with two drummers, so I wasn't a great drummer, so I, I could play rhythm guitar, just put me in there, you know, extra guitar. And we told that the way Hollywood works at the Grammys, it was in, um, what was that, Rock City, I think, in New York. And the way the Grammys works is you've got to go in the day and rehearse and everything and know all that. And then the show comes the next day. But, yeah, we were doing Mustang. So we were told James Brown and Rita Franklin were going to be sitting in the front watching it. And we played, but typical Irish, one miming, Andrew singing live, so the girls. And the fucking drummer. Imagine a typical Irish, the drummer goes out with time on a fucking miming track. <laughs> and you could hear, because he hit the drums and he went there with time so you couldn't hear the track. And all you could hear, it was like you could see from the film, was turning him back, you fucking Egypt. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll always remember that because there's two stages. The artists who, who finished their performance would come down like a lift and you'd go up. So the guy that came down when we were going up was Seal. Oh. As if you go, all right, Sal. <laughs> they, they were all great. These people are all, all, um, one new one. You, there, there wasn't any, these people you think it'd be rude or, you know, about one or two, rude, but they were great. They, they, they were all very helpful and they sit with us. But it, we played and we done that bit in James Brown and it's on that YouTube, he's watching it. So we go back into our seats and we were up for a nomination, best new album or something. And Angeline Ball's beside me in the seat. It's like at the cinema or a show. And she, there's this guy with big fuzzy hair sleeping on my fucking shoulder. And Angeline said, wake him up. And I said, I said fucking Bob Dylan's falling asleep on your shoulder. <laughs> I, I said, Bob, Angeline was, I didn't even know. I said, Bob, Angeline. And he went, all right, all right. He, says, he must have seen these things so many times. That was fucking Bob Dylan fell asleep on my shoulder. Wow. That's a, that's a claim to fame. 
Yeah, Morley and O'Hara on a flight back from Los Angeles. We were doing some promotion and the one or two of us had to stay on a few days to do more interviews. And it was me and Ken McCluskey, Air Lingus, back to, I mean, first class and, you know, three beers getting drunk and next of all, a woman behind us. See you young entertainers, you've got to keep your energy. What a lovely film. It was Marty and O'Hara sitting behind us. Wow. And I remember walking back to me, Miles and Crumlin, where I got a piece of paper signed because she lived in Clara Limerick at that time. And she was just at the walking on that film with John Candy. I forget, it was very big at the time. But uh, yeah, so she said, so she gave us an orange each for vitamins and then we could have a drink. <laughs> she, she, she was looking after you. She was, yeah, very motherly, very motherly. Wow. And just talked about John Wayne and our films and a very beautiful woman, you know, like she aged great, you know, and um, very well-mannered and just talking to us about things and had a nap and then she got off at Shannon Airport and we went on to Dublin. Yeah, I, I mean, looking back at, you know, great times and great, great memories and everything, was it... After, you know, that the whole bubble of the commitments and everything, then did you audition for other film roles? You mentioned Gabriel Byrne put you in into the West. Did you go looking for work or did people come to you? How did it work? The people got me an agent, but I didn't, I'm not an actor, so it sort of scared me. I was, I, I realised after the film that I wasn't being taken as a musician. I was being taken as a bit of a action kind of wild guy. You know, right. Some people in Dublin thought that was for real. I've been attacked in Dublin after the film a few times. You mean that they were kind of thought you were like a parody? Yeah, so people get drunk, oh, you think it hard, because the character was the hardest man in Dublin, you know? I yeah. had a forehead in Dublin. Yeah. And, you know, suddenly you're going out and people had come up to you, and yeah, brilliant, just have a point and sign autographs, but the other one wanted to, to take you on because it was good for him to go the next day and say, I beat up Micah Wallace, you know? Yeah. So there was a, only in Dublin that ever happened. Never anywhere else. Never right. in there, Scotland. So I started becoming hard after that, and I got arrested over the fight, and it ended up in the papers, you know. So, but you know, the things happen like that, you know. So the police yeah. are on me back all the time, because the police knew me from busking. They'd seen me growing up in the area, you know. So that that, but that police love doing it because they get the journalists down, and then the journalists make a paper thing, but um. You know, so it happened to me twice, and that's the way things went. So my, my character, a reputation, started becoming a bit of a wild man and a drunk for years, you know. But that's like, right. There's the ups and downs. But you know what? I don't really give a fuck what people think anymore. Yeah, and, and as you said, I mean, it, you know, it is a bit of a bubble because the, um, you're in this world, and as you said, one day you're on Grafton Street, and the next day you're in the Roxy Theatre or you're in Hollywood and it's hard it's hard to kind of normalise what you're doing so of course people get sucked into drugs and drink very easy because they want to have that life or they they don't know how to deal with what they're having so it's not easy to be normal after is it? Whatever normal is. Listen, I, I, I still realise that I've had relationships that broke down because I was... All these years still, I was used to a bubble life. It set me up in a bubble life that when I came out to normality, and people say, ah, oh, life is just the same. It's not. The world still runs, but these people wanted to settle down. I was still wanting to, because I wasn't used to reality anymore. 
So I've decided to live my life in a bubble life, but I still do, you know, I accept reality. But things, I couldn't hack it, like, I'll get a nine-to-five job after all them years. I've to been 20 years in this bubble. Yeah. So it's, um, and the bubble, I, I said, oh, it's not 20 years I've been in the bubble. I've been in the bubble since I've been a kid. Yeah. You know? And um, so it's hard to gel. Don't, yeah, you're right, you know, people going to work, we're out drinking at, during the night going home in the morning you're adrenaline off the gigs you know you're traveling and you're living out of suitcases and and you know people my drinking got pretty heavy yeah i made it yeah. i never took drugs or anything but you know i've spent years off it just to keep people happy i haven't I think i drank twice since last march or something you know yeah but yeah. Well, the problem is that when i go out i like watching bands and i can continue till the next day so yeah yeah so do you do you I don't like what other some people do, you know. Yeah, I mean that's the whole thing with any kind of addictions or mental health or any kind of stuff is the fact you have to you people can help you, but you have to control it yourself. And some people want to control it a little bit, and some people say I have it under control, I'm fine, I can have a drink. And some people say no, I couldn't touch a drop or my life's over. So everybody's different, no? Yeah. Listen, I I've always been, as I said, fit up until twenty four, and I was in my late thirties that I started getting the mental health issues because of it, partying and worrying, and everything became negative. And then suddenly, you you know, you've dropped from this big bubble world back flat back down to earth with a crash, and stuck in England and fuck all, and still struggling. Things went bad, and. You, Looking at it now, I've reinvented my career doing that. But at the time, was I've been homeless in England. I'm not. It's not. I see other celebrities use that as a tool for the. Oh, I was homeless. Fuck you. You weren't homeless. I was homeless. You know, and maybe yeah. because of my drinking. But it, it's. I couldn't. It's all I was used to, you know. And it's easy for people to say, oh, blah blah blah. Get. They don't understand, you know. But I'm strong. I always got up in the end, and I've always proved myself, you know. Dave, what do you think now in this current climate with, you know, all these self-help gurus, gurus out there and people, you know, proclaiming to have the answer for mental health and not, not I don't want to, sorry, I don't want to say the answer, but to have, you know, techniques and all of this. Do you think that uh, there, it's good or there's too much, it's, the market is saturated with all this kind of stuff now? Do you want me to answer that? Yeah, I do. I, I'd, I'd like, because I have my own opinion. I, lo I, I love studying the old martial arts, Chinese way of philosophy and things. I followed Bruce Lee left, right and said and read them. But in the end of the day, your mind is your mind. <laughs> no one mm. controls that. It's, it's very hard to control a memory. You know, when someone says, oh, I'm down because, oh, just snap out of it. Body doesn't work like that. Mm. You know, like that's why people get depressed that that's always still in my memory. You can't just snap because somebody tells you. you. I'll go in the corner and breathe for five minutes. It's a long process to come out of things, you know, when you're down. But you can take up things and you can keep yourself busy, you know. And a lot of the depression is mine was a bit of failure at music, maybe relationship breakdowns, I should have done this, and I took the debate to control it, and that doesn't help. But in the other way, I've, I've come out of it, and that's what people are surprised, and I didn't look haggard or whatever, you know. It, it's... Um, yeah. That's I've got that look inside me, but you know, yeah. That's what someone says to me. Said, "Find the streets from Hollywood," and I went, "No, no," because it, it's not the big bubble world, the management there. You're led to believe things, and it's not. You, you know, once it's over, you. But I've got enough experience now in my life to um, 
and I've I never took drugs or anything. Always anti-drug. I tried them, a drink and beer. That was it. But I just I can party a bit longer than some other people, you know. And yeah, it can lead to a bit of confusion. And I don't take shit anymore. And I get a bit angry, and because I was hurt, no one understood that. You know, you can't explain. Oh, they're just excuses. You know, they're not. Yeah, not excuses. But I, I, no. I keep myself try to keep myself busy. And when I got decided to do care work, I seen, especially through COVID, you only live once, and you like, you know, these people, um, are old. You know, they can't see their families, the passing. You know, and they've memories, and you see their memories in the pictures, and the, and you get used to them. You know, and I said that's the kind of thing I sort of woke up. You know. Because I was a bit of a bad boy. I was a bit a bad boy with a bit of a goal and a good heart. I'm not a nasty person, but the drink can do things to you when you're constantly on it, you know. Because mm. you're down and you're out. And it's, unfortunately, said, don't go drinking and when you're down. But people do. If you notice when people have arguments, they will shop and they go, look that, and they, we have a, a beer, you know. We have bad yeah. times and we have good times. So that's the way I think now, you know. You, you've lost things that you cherished and you just have to get on with it and the memories and try and make what's best for you you know yeah people say oh you talk about yourself all the time to other people they're not actually talking about themselves they're talking about the way they feel you know there's difference yeah. between fainness and confidence and you know yeah do, so do you always add in my head when you look back there you said you know you, you're saying there that you felt you were a bad boy and you could be do you feel that now as you're older and more mature and experienced do you feel that you look back and say, oh, you know, I done that person wrong or I didn't do right by that person and I want to make amends? Or do you feel it's very hard to do that? Well, no, because I, I always have a guilty conscience. Um, I always have. So the bad boy thing in me, I was never a bad boy. I do, I done it because I was sick of people trying to have a go because I was having the commitments. So train me and you, you can put on a false thing. But sometimes, you know, I let people down, I hold people. And they've done the same to me, but uh, we're all different. Yeah, I, I apologize. I've been known to apologize. Andrew Strong, Rob Strong's, <clears throat> Andrew Strong's dad, Rob Strong, was one of my biggest heroes. And he, like a young protege, uh, let me have this performance stage and use my voice. And because I was always a singer, and anyway, b before a drummer, and um, listen to his stories from growing up in the show band days to his rock days in the 70s he, we all lived it you know we've all lived that mm. life it's there and it's around you and it's um so <clears throat> he said you're the only man that anything that ever happened he'd get up and say next morning i'm sorry i was out of order but sometimes people have enough and they don't if it's the opposite way with me i forgive and that's it you know and that's the way i'm you know yeah i i mean life is hard you know and the thing is that everybody deals with everything differently. And and sometimes, you know, we can try and always beg for forgiveness, but then you have to say, well, what did the person do? And it's hard. It's hard to know what's the right thing to do at times, isn't it? Everyone has a different view on it. Yeah, like, like, yeah of course you do. You know, that it's funny. Humans have the same nature, yeah, and feelings. and But we have different feelings and the different timings of everything. If we all had them at the same time, we'd be all... You know, so yeah, that's what's yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything, yeah. the day is all at different times. But, you know, going back, the, the, the really thing was that after the commitments and I had the chance of acting, I had a manager, and I'm not going to say who it was, but he just, that banged it up for me. So the commitments was up for tours, and we took a, a show called The Stars of the Commitments because Andrew had a solo career. And Dick Massey, a few of us out of the film, 
done a British tour in 93. I took the vocals over. We actually, Rob Strong and the Stars of the Commitments was the full show. And I take the vocals and I wasn't a great soul singer compared to now. Because I train everything, everything I have to do, I, I train. I still use the bedroom and I train constantly. Mm. Yeah. The habit I still have. And learning from Rob and listening to the soul stuff. I'd studied and studied. And I was in the Stars of the Commitments. <clears throat> Dick Massey, Ken McCluskey. And we toured the world for 10 years. That's when it, the beards all the touring. That's when it really snapped in. The press and we toured. I left in 2001. I, you know, because I was just singing a bit more known, my character was known to the press in Ireland. So they were always anything that went on the road, hence keep what's on the road. Fuck that. I come home and say, mm. they was, and their story would be safe and covered. And I left and I fell out with them for years. And but we're all friends now. And um, but that's the big bubble, the touring. We'd be, I, I played a gig in London and played in Delhi the next day. And then was back in fucking Glasgow or something the day after. <laughs> that's the way you wow. went. You know, and then yeah. you continue your tour and you're going potty and there's always booze around. And fortunately, I found the old rock killer, Jack Daniels, during that stage. And uh, yeah. Always been a bit of hype, but wanted to be part of the fun and without drinking. But the guys, because they didn't sing, I was sent to bed early. Fuck it, and they're all out partying, you know, because you're the singer. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. like it because I felt um, I wasn't Andrew Strong. I didn't want to be, but Andrew had no problem with it. I want you. You want to be yourself, you know. I don't want to be. And yeah, people say, um, but you've got a tribute, Dave Finnegan's commitments. Well, when I left, I came to England and. I tried to make it on my own, and but it's hard. And someone just said, "Why don't you do a Dave Finnegan's commitment?" And I laughed. So over the years, I've had that for since two thousand and four on and off. But over the last three, four years, it's just built up because I put my own knack in that, and I've just you get to an age where I just go and enjoy it, go and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. That partying days are behind you, and. You know, I like the odd drink here and there. Like, I love my band that I have around me. I brought them all the way I was brought up. They're not from big bands. They're just people that learn to put... I'm very natural learning from the pub way up to the festival. Just go yeah. and learn. And you train yourself to be a musician. You don't need to... If you don't have the money, you can... I just sat as a kid and listened to record after record after record until I got it. Until I got it, you know? Yeah. And yeah. learn how to walk in teamwork and communication and you'll be fine, you know? So yeah. I've got a brand management company that's set me up for um, obviously the last two years, this year, next year. It's going to be quite, but all our dates are put back, going to Europe and got my first solo single coming out next year. So there you go. Brilliant. Well done. I'm a, I'm a late starter. So if you're late starter, you finish late. No, anything is possible nowadays. You know, you don't always have to be young and sprightly and everything. It's it's great with modern technology and social media and everything to get music out there. You know, you don't need huge record companies behind you. So that's good. I, I want to ask you, um, with the commitments, like your Dave Finnegan commitments, obviously, are you the only commitments band touring at the moment, like from the original cast? Or are any of the others doing bands? There's loads of commitments tribute bands, and the other guys have the stars of the commitments, you know? As I said, we all get on now, so sometimes I've done guest appearance with them, and they've done it with me. But, you know, like, there'd be no going back to that. They moved on, and I'd moved on, and Dave Finnegan's commitments was just the past thing while they had a bit of money. But now it's got 
bigger because I've proved myself over the years. So no one's ever bothered to sue me or that fucking ruddy. But the others, they've let me do it and they've let me get on with it. And it doesn't cross any commitments, but the states of fact, it's Dave Finnegan's commitments to Dave Finnegan. It's the fucking nut from the. That's what people, when yeah. they came out singing, they go, oh, it's the head case. It's Mick Wallace, yeah. Yeah, Mick Wallace. And I didn't know he was that big of a character. You, you don't know yourself until you come out to the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so I've always been a, put my best ability to be more of a front man. Like I done all the James Brown moves, and I used to learn them to, from the the martial arts, stretching the legs. I could do. I fucking broke my leg four years ago. That stopped. But I, I like being yeah. a front man. And my my goal is to. I used to say, as a few of the elder musicians told me in Ireland, that I'm not there to. And I said, to the man, you're not there to enter. It's a job. You're not not there to entertain yourself you entertain the people that come and pay in to watch you and if they go home happy you're going to walk more and that's yeah fact. brilliant do you have a guitar handy would you like to do a song or anything i just last i never done i've been putting all songs up on youtube on facebook i'd never done it until last year there's always had the i have this embarrassment thing oh whatever i'm always a bit of a worrier but so mm. i said just put them up and i started writing because there's nothing else to do so with my management to do a solo thing next year and um you know you write about your feelings and believe it or not it's not rockabilly this stuff it's uh i just mix everything and i wrote this song and someone said where did you get it from i said it's influenced by i was listening to a carpenter's album i've always liked the carpenters very musical people it's very mm. very musical people and i've always loved the odd slow song in any way and um but uh and anyway this we're gonna do this as a single it's uh what's it called it ain't cold outside okay brilliant winter spring don't mean a thing summer autumn can hear the birds sing Sailed my ship, oceans blue. Now I've anchored, cause I found you. You raised my love to different heights. You gave me feeling to turn on the lights. And I'd just like to say to you, Thank you for being by my side Cause you know, sweet girl It ain't cold outside No, it ain't cold, baby I always worried what the world felt I went outside and my knees knelt Peaches and cream, sweeter than wine. All the colors, baby, can be yours and mine. Give it up now. And I'd just like to say to you, thank you for being by my side. Cause you know, sweet girl. Yes, you know, sweet girl. Yes, you know, sweet girl. It ain't cold outside. 
Always been um that's the other thing. I've always been songwriting since I'm seven fifteen or something, but I've never I've done rockabilly albums that I wrote, but um I decided to try and go for a pop album. Well a mixture of soul and everything, that kind of stuff, you know. Is that gonna be the new single? Hopefully, yeah. Brilliant. Well good luck with it. You you you've got to aim at it because of maturity if you want a bigger audience. So I, when I write I know it's, it's um, you know, I write about true life. That's about an ex and things were down, and then she helped me through a bit before the bad times. But you know, you that's your mind just springs out. This bulb goes off, and I go bam, give me the guitar, and that kind of that's the trigger. And then I just listen to the characters and the way she's saying I wanted to get that because they used all this why do birds suddenly so we went winter spring don't mean all the birds so you put that kind of thing yeah. in and whatever comes out your influences come out from your heart that's what yeah. you make your own you're, from your heart what, what you listen to you know inspiration is a great thing because you know it's good to look back at artists you admire and and even to hear something and go wow that's really good and i think for sure yeah we 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 do write from our own hearts, but we definitely have the influence from all the music we've listened to over the years. Of course, you know, like um, uh, I've, I've got into I love I love listening to Christy Moore, you know, and I'm a big supporter of Irish bands. I, I went to see Aslan in Glasgow uh, before the COVID, and I hadn't seen Billy or them in years. I had a few beers with them after. I've never really known Christy, just the odd, but the boys in the band I know from the clubs in Dublin and it was nice to see them, you know, and there's a band I should have made it. I my first the the certain bands in Dublin, the Blades, Paul Cleary, great Paul Cleary. They stepped me onto the ladder on the Irish rock scene. Yeah. I played their last gig before they split up in the nineties or eighties. I in the Olympic I supported them with Shark Bay and they whole team behind them or behind us and we get I support them every week in the bagot, you know? And yeah. this rockabilly band, and they, and they were sort of a mod following. <laughs> I mean, with the opposite, but um, I've done a few off to shoot bands with Paul. He, he was always there, Paul Cleary, and I love him. And then Aslan, look at the talent we had, Aslan the Blades. It's a shame. I mean, there's so many Irish bands that never made it. But, you know, then I suppose there are a lot that did make it, but we had a huge pool to pick from. I, I think obviously it's different now. It's a shame there aren't as many good Irish bands. That, I'm sorry, I don't, I'll rephrase that. They are good Irish bands still out there, but it's it's hard for them to make it now. The pool is much bigger. Everything sounds similar. Yes, yeah, you're very right. You see, in, in our day, we done it for money, wasn't it? You know, like I got into a, a, the commitments to business world where everybody, I see people that just played for money. I can't do that to play for me. Cause we just go, we'd go and play in pubs for a pint or something. Never made a penny, you know. Mm. I remember when I supported um, Paul Cleary at the, the Blades' last concert in the Olympia Ballroom in Dublin. It was called the Olympic Ballroom, not the Olympia, the, the Olympic Ballroom, and it, which is very scary because I'd be doing a fight scene in that venue three years later. But we supported him and he gave they gave us fifteen pounds. 
<laughs> I had fifteen pound in nineteen eighty seven or something to support him. Went out, bought a bottle of vodka, and me drinking on stage. <laughs> wow! So that that's how that's how we, we, that was our money for that one, you know. Brilliant, brilliant. To me, these were all big bands, and you know, played with the Pogues with that rockabilly band, and you know, we we were uh, for the rockabilly band. I, very inspired by an Irish band, those handsome devils that were forced out. But Rockabilly did, that was sort of shunned from the media, you know, it's us too. Yeah. People forget, without that music, that's the first rock and roll punk music kind of, it's the first kind of music that broke away from shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We have, we have these rock charts today and we have all, and people forget the Carol Perkins of these worlds and Jane Vincent's and Elvis's were the first of the lot, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's great. There's a great history. For you this year now, obviously with COVID, it's a bit of a dampener and everything. But what are your aspirations for this year? I mean, do you have things you'd like to achieve with your new single, being one of them? Yeah, well, so I've got a great management company that... I've been around, they've worked with everything from Girls Aloud. So I've gone um, and Andrew the Piper Management in England. And I ha I've done it myself, but I handed over the reins to, to them two years ago because I just want to play now. And they've done wonders. And we were meant to go, to, I got a call just before you, we were meant to go to France. It's been put back, all the shows are going to be put back. But they were telling me that because they have to deal with politicians because they have all the big acts like the beautiful South and all that that it, it looks like we're, gigging's going to be June oh, and all the vaccines are done in May. It, it's going to start. So all our dates have been put back. So to continue with the band, do the single, I enjoy my care work that I'm doing. So that's kept me busy. Luckily, it's kept my mind straight, you know. Um, I'm writing my songs. But um, yeah, to do the record, that's my goal, to do my own record, whether it sells or not, just to have it. I wrote, I've done something, you know creative creative is a good thing you know people forget a lot of artists when I, we talked about mental health or uh, which can bring on is a lot of creative people have bad times you know mm. it's just the way the 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 brain buzzes you know is as i said I, that song i wrote and i felt i had to explain it's like i felt the flash in my brain it's like a bulb and that's how i feel and I just bam, and then I couldn't write anything for six months after that. You know, you never know. But you go when you once you get that song, you get the whole role. Yeah, no, I, I really, I really enjoyed our chat, and and you know, we, we finally got together, and it's it, it. I've really enjoyed it. It's been good, and you know, you've reminded me of some great memories from Ireland and the commitments, and it's great to hear your stories. And I'm, you know, as I always say to my interesting guests. You know, some are more interesting than others, but I always say it'll be a pleasure to have you on the show sometime again. And, you know, I hope we can we can help you plug your new single when the time comes and everything. And thanks a lot, Dave. And, you know, take care of yourself. And, you know, mind, mind everybody there in Glasgow and mind yourself most of all, okay? Yeah, same to you, mate. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Dave. Okay, I hope you all enjoyed that. That was a really interesting chat with Mr. Dave Finnegan. 
Dave was a great guest and he, you know, enlightened us to some of his commitment days and some touring secrets and things that we mightn't have known. So I enjoyed that, Dave, and thank you very much for coming on the show. Okay, so next week's guest is Ruth Dillon. So Ruth Dillon is from Clanmel, but now living in Galway. And Ruth is a singer-songwriter, and she's been on the circuit for a while. And now she's part of a new band called The Rains. And we're going to talk to Ruth about her career so far and plans ahead for the next year or so. And that's going to be a really interesting chat. So we look forward to that. So join us for that one also. So... Thank you very much, guys, for tuning in. Once again, this is the Collective Whisper podcast. My name is Simon Kay, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Take care of yourself, look after everybody else, and see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.